Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. So now, if I ever feel fearful, I jump out there. You know, I'm either going to fly or I'm going to fall. And if I fall, that's still a lesson on its own, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then you jump again. And so that's how I've started living my life since then. You can find pets everywhere. The grocery store, the hardware store, restaurants, planes, trains, and automobiles. Have you ever wondered about this? Are we highlighting the animal bond in the best way possible? Well, today, Dr. Risa Houston tells her vet life reimagined story, influential family experiences, overcoming fear, and creating a career path for herself where she is solving this very challenge of educating best practices for assistance dogs by starting a consulting practice. This is a fantastic episode. Here is Dr. Risa Houston. I'm really excited to, to dive into your story again. And I think you have a really interesting answer to this question about when did you know that you wanted to get into veterinary medicine? So let's start there. What's your story? My story. So um, I was born in a small town called Brownwood, Texas. And as a country little girl, my, although I never had personal pets, my grandparents, my aunts, you know, they all did. So animals, um, I mean, I used to go to a hog farm and ride pigs, okay, with my uncle. (laughs) So that's how country I was, okay? (laughs) And so um, one of my great, great aunts had a litter of kittens. And I begged my parents if I could get a kitten. And I was in third, third grade. And they allowed me to pick out two cats, Pancake and Gray Boy. So (laughs) (laughs) I had my first trip to the vet, Brownwood, I want to say it was Brownwood Veterinary Clinic or Brownwood Animal Hospital. And I took my two kittens with my father to the vet. And I swear on everything, one of the cats scratched the dickens out of the vet, whole claw just in the hand. And then he had to pull it out. And when he pulled it out, a little blood went trickling down his hand. And I found that so cool. I don't know why, (laughs) but I did. And so um, when I got home, I remember saying I wanted to be a vet. And I asked my dad, I said, dad, do vets make a lot of money? And he was like, did you see that bill I paid? And (laughs) from then on, I said, I wanted to be a vet. And, And that's my story. Well, look at you, uh, you know, exploring your career options as a third grader, making sure it's lucrative. And <laughs> you and know, it doesn't really balance out to the bill so much, you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, that that was the truth um, of how I got introduced to veterinary medicine. 
Very interesting. So what was the process of, of getting into vet school and going through vet school for you? So my my parents were very proactive to us at a very early age on saying that we had to get our education. So for from a young age, the expectation for us was not only did we have to go to college to get our bachelor's, but at minimum, we had to get our master's. Okay. Oh, wow. And so when I was in fifth grade, my parents took me on a college tour and we visited mostly historically black colleges and universities from Texas to Georgia. One of those universities that we visited was Tuskegee University. And I found out they had a veterinary school. So I'm only in fifth grade. So I'm like, oh, this is where I want to go to vet school. (laughs) And so I stayed pretty consistent through high school and college and undergrad. I went to Piedmont College, which is an hour north of Atlanta as a biology major, because I didn't want to do both my undergrad and veterinary school um, at the same school for whatever reason, you know, that I had in high school. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I, I actually went to undergrad off of a soccer scholarship. And so, um, so then finally, I took a break from undergrad. I took a three-year break from, veterinary, from undergrad to veterinary school. The break was only supposed to be a year, but I was scared to apply to vet school. And so it ended up being three years. And in that time, I pretty much worked at veterinary clinics. And so finally, I mustered up the courage to apply. When I went to have my interview, my father came with me and uh, he drove me down to Tuskegee. And, you know, I went into this interview and I had the best interview I've ever experienced in my life. And I can't even remember all of the questions I remember one question, the only way I was able to answer it was because of the experience I had as a, as a vet tech assistant, right? So, and it had just happened to the vet I was working with. So she was doing a spay. Uh, Whatever happened with the spay, uh, her ligature broke or whatever. So she ended up having to open up the entire abdomen to search for the stump so she can tie it off. And I remember her shaking, you know, like she got really nervous. And and I remember asking, I'm like, what is going on? And she's like, it's bleeding. And she's like, I got to find the bleeding. And it's like, where is it bleeding from? And her answer was, it's only bleeding from a couple of places, you know, like, you know, there's only a couple of possibilities, right? That was her answer, right? <laughs> Nothing further. And so my question uh, in my interview was, what do you do if you're in a spay and you have a bleeder? <laughs> and I was like, well, the bleeding can only be coming from a couple of places. <laughs> and I said, you stay calm, you open up the abdominal cavity, and then you look for your bleeder and you tie it off. <laughs> and And that was my answer. And then I remember... Every single clinician was like, 
Good job. <laughs> Good job. And so this interview, they just kept asking me questions because I think I did so well. They were trying to stump me. And so when I finally finished, one of the professors was taking me on a tour of the school and he was so excited. And then when I finally got back to my dad, my dad was like, what, what was going on? Were you answering the questions wrong? You went in before some people and they came back, you know, <laughs> or like before you, he's like, you were in there forever. I was like, dad, there's no way I'm not getting in. You know, oh. I did so good. So yeah, that's, that was, that was my story. Um, I, I first got introduced to Tuskegee in fifth grade and then just stuck with it and luckily got in after the first go. So that's really fascinating. So I am a little curious about your parents. I mean, not many parents are taking their fifth graders on college tours. So what was their mindset there? Well, again, education was very important for them. Both of them had um, their master's, but, you know, I had sisters that were eight or nine years older than me. So they, you know, fifth grade, I think my oldest sister was already in college. And so for them, I think they recognize in order for us, their children to have the best opportunities at life, we needed an education. And it was about giving us insight on all the different options out there Mm -hmm. for us to make a decision that was right for us. And, you know, particularly with people of color, one of the, the common issues on, well, I, I, I think I'm not a hundred percent certain because this is not my area, but um, one of the things that is said is that we aren't exposed, you know, we don't have as much exposure to, you know, all of our options uh, as professionals. We don't get to see people that look like us in the different areas of professions in these schools. And so therefore, sometimes we lose interest and or we go to the wayside or we don't reach our maximum potential because we just weren't shown all of our options. So my parents, when we lived in Texas, they both worked at a youth detention center. And so because of that, they saw many kids, you know, that were sharp in their own right, just kind of going down the wrong path because of a variety of reasons. And a common reason outside of just not having mentors and guidance and um, family members that can really help guide them, they realized that these children fell by the wayside and ended up where they were. And so they were very intentional in being active in our lives and letting us know what we could be if if we wanted to. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I I think this theme will come back around when we talk <laughs> about your career journey uh, further. Um, and, and so usually the next kind of question that I ask people is, as you went into vet school and when you left vet school, uh, a lot of people change their thoughts about what they might want their career to look like. So was there an evolution for you during those years or what was that like? Yeah, I definitely had an evolution. Um, So initially, um, my original thoughts going into veterinary school was, 
I was going to go through and then I was going to be a small animal practitioner. I was going to own my own clinic and, you know, just the tra- be a traditional veterinarian. But in my first year, Tuskegee has an annual symposium conference every year. And in that conference, I realized that when I looked at the schedule, that most of the sessions I was interested in all had a familiar theme. They were all in the public health uh, tract. And so then I recognized early on that I had a stronger interest in public health within the veterinary space. And so after my first year, I was like, well, I'm not going to do clinical practice. I'm going to go get my master's of public health and PhD and do something in this public health sector uh, with my veterinary degree. But (laughs) after studying for the NAVALI (laughs) in my um, fourth year and just feel like, I feel like that was the smartest I ever was in my entire life. Um, The day I took the NAVALI was the smartest I've ever been in my entire life. And so I was like, well, maybe I should solidify these clinical skills before just going back to school and back to school. And so I made the conscious decision to practice at minimum for three years because I was like, what if I'm saying I want to go into public health and I don't like it? How do I bounce back? And that might be a little bit more difficult. I ended up practicing and I haven't gone back to school. But... But in in this case, in this practicing as a clinician, and again, additional experiences with my father, it led me to, you know, utilizing not only all of my clinical, small animal clinical skills and expertise to create and develop, you know, my organization, Assistance Animals Consulting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind sharing the story with your father and and how it kind of led to your your current organization? Yeah, so it's so weird when you know I I never kind of placed everything at, um, until recently, but I find it amazing how my father has been the one that was connected to me for my my purpose in life, right? Mm-hmm. From you know going to the vet, you know, telling me vets make a lot of money and, you know, taking me to veterinary school. And then here in this transition, my, when I was in my junior year in veterinary school, my father got really sick. Um, He had some type of cardiac incident that they couldn't figure out. And he was literally on his deathbed. And so It was the summer of me going into my junior year, and I remember consciously debating if I was going to stay home and, you know, stay at the hospital and help my mom with my dad, or if I was going to go on to vet school. And I think I shared with you with this before on the seriousness of his condition, one of the specialists on a day that we were at the hospital came to me and my mother and basically said from his experience and professional opinion, we needed to um, start preparing for his death and alert our family, you know, 
And my mom and I vowed that we weren't going to express his opinion to anybody else. And he didn't know what he was talking about. And, and luckily my daddy recovered. With that being said, I, I, I decided to go ahead and go to vet school um, and not postpone anything because I felt that, you know, that's what he would want. But in his recovery process, he ended up getting really, really close to his cardiologist at Emory and they developed a really, really great relationship. At the time when my dad was at his worst, they were telling us when he did, if if he recovered, he wouldn't be able to walk, he wouldn't be able to talk, you know, all of these things. Well, he made a complete recovery. Let's fast forward a couple of years, let's say four, maybe five years. And he had his regular visits with his cardiologist, Dr. Smith. And at one of those visits, my father asked asked Dr. Smith if he would write him a letter for a support animal. And so Dr. Smith wrote him a prescription letter for an assistance animal. And then my father came and basically stole my personal dog, Roxy, (laughs) Roxy Ann. And he and Roxy and my mom started traveling the United States with my dog. Well, now his dog, his assistance animal with his little prescription letter. And in that process, although I was happy, I was like, wait what's happening here? No one ever asked me, his veterinarian, Roxy's veterinarian, for any information. No vaccine records, no behavioral questions, you know, and they were going to hotels, they were going into restaurants, you know, it was, I was like, there's something off here. And from there, I started paying attention when I was out and about and when I was traveling. And I want to say this was around 2011, 2012. And in that time frame at the airport, I'm seeing dogs, larger dogs <laughs> with these service animal vests pulling their owners, you know, through the airport. And I'm like, mm, that dog didn't look, you know, trained well. And I started saying, hey, this is this is going to be a problem. Something needs to happen here. It, it, it might have been a little before that. And so, you know, no, no real big thoughts were like, yeah, this, this process is not right. Fast forward another couple of years, maybe about two or three, I was working for an organization and I wasn't really happy. Um, I was having some challenges at the time and my father passed away. And I took a month off from work and I was like, you know, I can't go back to that same situation. And I just kind of prayed and it's like, hey, give me guidance on what my next steps should be, like help me out here. And in that month and in that time frame is where I came up with this idea of assistance animals consulting. And it's like, you know that there's a problem, you know that there needs to be some additional veterinary oversight. And, you know, in the time and helping my father, we were breaking rules left and right because, you know, he wasn't given the proper education. When I would talk to my colleagues, none of us had any education at that time on the difference between service dogs, emotional support animals, uh, an assistance dog. I was like, there needs to be 
a veterinary specialist that focuses on not only supporting handlers and giving them education on their rights of access, their training needs, but also to the healthcare providers, you know, so that we are as veterinarians ultimately advocating for that animal. Should they be in this role? What do they need to be in order to be successful in this role? How long can they maintain in this role? And so my idea was to bridge the gap between between veterinary care and human care as a consultant. And that's how I uh, established Assistance Animals Consulting and, and the why behind it. Yeah. I, I just think this is such an interesting story because I think most veterinarians who have traveled have seen these animals too and thought the exact <laughs> same thing. And it's like, I wonder what the rules are here. <laughs> so I, I definitely see a huge opportunity for education on the human health side. So the, the cardiologist thought he was supporting his patient and he didn't know all the, the rules or he doesn't understand the animal side of it. But veterinarians understand the animal side on what makes a good pet in those types of situations. I think I, I shared with you an observation when I went to, it was a, a non-veterinary conference, but it was a conference where there were a lot of animals. And some of those dogs did really well in that environment, which is, I mean, it is crazy busy. It's packed. There's people everywhere. There's animals everywhere. Some of these dogs were just doo doo They were doing just fine. But then some were really panicking and they yeah. they were not appreciating the environment. So being able to advocate for pets in this way, I think is important. And then also it, it goes back to something that I feel is special, which is the human animal bond too. And you got to circle back into public health. Right, so. <laughs> right, right. It, it's, it's perfect. It just kind of aligned everything. All, all of my skills and passion, uh, I've been able to kind of put into to this, uh, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. So what have you kind of found as, you know, specifically talking to making this a career for you, what have you found as some of the the joys, but also the challenges in creating something from scratch and and doing something that, you know, what I think people would consider a little bit non-traditional for a veterinarian. What what have your experiences been? Yeah. So let's start with the joy. Um, (laughs) The joy is having an idea, you know, of something and then seeing that idea actually come to fruition, right? You know, complete with logo and name. And then that's the first part. And then the next part is having your first client, right? And saying, oh, oh, you know, this is is real. And, And then not just having your first client, but having your first client in which you have made an impact with and on. All of that feels wonderful. I foresee only continued beauty and wonderment as this organization continues to grow and to do more with the ideology of what I have for it to do, okay? The challenges 
have been with this aspect of veterinary medicine and human medicine is really underregulated. And in my opinion, veterinary professionals are behind the curve, meaning we're not at the forefront of these conversations. We typically aren't even thought about or are only or are only thought about for the basic care. So as a general practitioner, I can honestly say prior to developing this organization that when someone would come in with a support animal, most of the time they would say service dog. The dog in the exam room would have all types of anxious behavior. I've, I've had aggressive dogs that their handlers were saying were service dogs. And I'm like, okay, you know, and there was no additional conversation on this should this dog should not be used in this role. It's like we wash our hands with it, right? And when you talk about public health and safety, that's part of our oath, you know, that we have to we have to look out for public health and safety. And so we need to do more than just say, not my problem, not my fight. You know, we need to be able to contact their prescribing healthcare provider. We need to have that conversation with that owner saying, hey, you know, you know, you don't need to use this animal in this role until these behaviors are corrected. But, you know, that is the challenge is that we are bogged down in a veterinary facility. We, you know, it's challenging for us to ask, well, who's your healthcare provider? I need to call them, right? I personally, prior to starting Assistance Animals Consulting, um, spoke up to a client and that client stopped coming to me <laughs> as a client. And so there's the challenge of loss of revenue by doing the right thing and speaking up you know, eventually the client circled back because his dog was just that aggressive and every single vet he went to told him that. Um, so then he didn't hold it against me. But that is a real deal when you're talking about private practitioners and they're looking at, you know, the growth or any type of practitioner for that matter. And they're looking at the growth of their clinic. How, how do you do the right thing, you know, and still be able to maintain your clientele? The challenge has been the underregulation. The challenge has been of this field. The challenge has been, you know, veterinarians are not at the forefront of the conversation. The challenge is that these pres prescriptions are allotted before being signed off by a veterinary professional. The challenge is after this prescription is written, maybe the owner will come to the vet. Maybe they won't. There's just no comprehensive collaboration in this. And so, you know, at Tuskegee, I don't know if you've heard about the One Health approach, uh, One Health concept. Mm -hmm. And so I really align assistance animals uh, consulting under the One Health uh, aspect of healthcare, where there's collaboration between veterinarians, healthcare providers, trainers, nurses, all collectively together, figuring out, you know, what is the healthcare goal of this human patient and how do we, you know, support this human patient with this animal, 
you know, that's essentially a prescription and ensuring that both are successful in this role and that this animal, you know, that is successful on both sides of the leash. And, and this animal is not essentially, you know, being abused and nobody is thinking about them and their emotional health physical health. And uh, that's essentially our goal. And that's what the human-animal bond is all about. It's mutually beneficial. We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit VetBadger.com and find the link in the description below. Yes. So in your consultation services, are you helping pet owners, veterinarians? Like who are you speaking to? So when I initially launched, clients were all of the above. Okay. Health, human healthcare providers, veterinarians, and handlers. And so in the reality, as a business owner, you look at, oh, you really need to refine who your target is. And because I'm an ideologist and I really want to be on the forefront of the prescription, my target are human health care prescribers and veterinarians, right? Veterinarians in the sense because, you know, hopefully people are taking their pets or, you know, their support animals uh, to the veterinarian. And if we as veterinarians or veterinary technicians or tech assistants see something, then they can step up the and step out into the forefront of the conversation and say, hey, we have a specialist for you. We need to combine your healthcare records. Your healthcare provider needs to have your medical records. And this specialist will help align everything so we can make sure that we're keeping your animal as healthy as possible for you, for it can continue to be successful as a support animal in, in its role. So, yeah, mm -hmm. so I would, you know, I would say, you know, human healthcare providers and veterinary professionals, but then there's the side part of the handlers that kind of fall in there as well. Yeah. And when you're speaking, it sounds like there's a lot of challenge on more of the regulatory level. So the the people who are creating policies around having assistance dogs. So where where is the current status on that? You know, it really depends on the state. Some states okay. uh, now have, because this has become such a popular alternative healthcare strategy, some states have now started to be a little bit more proactive in their regulation, but on the federal level, it's still pretty bare and pretty open-ended on what you can do. It, it needs, regulation needs a little bit more and that that's a, I'm not into I'm not, that's not my area, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, it's an area that I need, need to really look at learning more about and be more proactive in 
advocating for additional regulation, particularly with veterinary insight. But um, right now it's just not there. It's just contingent on states, depending on state. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know that it's a state by state basis. So um, mm-hmm. if anyone listening is curious, it, it sounds like you need to look at the state uh, rules around that, which is interesting because we see a lot of these dogs on planes and they're crossing states. So what happens if you go from one state to another? That gets yeah. really complicated, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of planes, like a couple of years ago, Delta Airlines had a animal advisory board before they changed all their rules and regulations. And me and Dr. Jordan, um, the veterinarian that works with me, uh, we got to go up and present to Delta and, you know, give them our perspective and, you know, some of the challenges. And we really enjoyed that meeting. Shortly after that meeting is when Delta, Delta was the first airline to change their policies, you know, in regards to service dogs or support animals. And then all the other airlines started changing their policy shortly after. And that occurred because of, you know, the loopholes people were trying to utilize to get free airline travel for their pets or for their companion pets. And because of you know, the frequency of just getting these online prescription letters for service dogs or emotional support uh, uh, animals. And I think the airlines did the right thing. Um, You know, it was a public health uh, issue, in my opinion. They had to step out as a corporation, an individualized corporation, and set their rules because the rules federally and on the state level, we're, we're so all over the place. So, um, you know, they had to create their own rules and regulations to ensure a, a safer place for all of their um, potential clients. Yeah. And, you know, I do, I give them some kudos because that definitely was not popular decision mm-hmm. uh, on changing uh-huh. and making that stricter because people were enjoying those uh-huh. loopholes. Um, because because I think, you know, they, they do like that animal, human animal bond. And they were just trying to, to do that, maybe just not in the best way. They don't always understand either that the, the other end of the leash, as you say, I like that phrase. I also want to to thank you because as you said, the veterinary voice isn't always at the table. And mm-hmm. it's something I've, I've tried to advocate for. It is having the veterinarians in these places of the discussions and mm-hmm. how can we bring that perspective? How can we bring the oath that we have said and tried to bring the animal perspective and the one health perspective, both to the table. So um, one, how did you end up working with Delta? Did they, did they find you? Did you reach out and, and how would you recommend veterinarians finding these opportunities to get voice at the table? Yeah, so ironically, um, at the time, I think Delta had just hired on a new veterinarian, and this particular veterinarian, uh, Dr. Neville Bryan, um, was their cargo vet. 
she happened to reach out to me on LinkedIn and she saw some of my posts and she was like, hey, this is what's happening. So she's the one that actually brought me on board. Now, she was a veterinarian for cargo, which is under the cabin. And this conversation was more based on cabin issues. And so, you know, I think that with any organization where there's any type of interaction with animals that you really need to have a veterinarian at the table to help you with your policy and policy making and your teaching or educational strategies to your associates if you're going to truly make a comprehensive sound decision in regards to how we as veterinary professionals uh, get those opportunities. I'm still figuring it out as, you know, as I go, you know, truly it's about networking and talking to people and saying, oh, hey, you know, I know Dr. Sprinkle, you know, <laughs> she does this, you know, maybe you guys should connect because this is her, this is her area. And it's, it's, it's really about uh, networking as well as, just getting out there and saying, hey, you might not be aware of this, but this is an organization that can so support you in, in your needs in this area. Yeah. I like that idea of just being aware too, um, whether it's like listening to a podcast like this and you hear about different veterinarians or veterinary technicians in different areas, you you start to learn these these things. And so when the situation arises, you can support your colleague and say, hey, yeah. and the animal, right? Because you're connecting, right. you're being a connector. And it's like, oh, I know somebody who's focused in that area. They would be able to help you in this in this situation. So I really like that. Yeah. Um, and, and you, I mean, you found a, a niche. You found a problem that needed to be solved and you're, and you're working on it and uh, you're kind of taking the reins of your career. You're, you're making this very, you know, you and, and you're, <laughs> you're doing great things. And I wanted to go back just a little bit and acknowledge one, that's not easy. It's not easy to, to do something very new to, to do something you probably often feel alone <laughs> yeah. Um, and having to figure out a lot of things. Um, but first of all, we're, we're vet med. We are problem solvers. So this is what we do. We solve problems that they, they may all look a little bit different, but we can do that. We bring that skill set. but kind of noticing, you know, you, you waited a few years to apply to vet school. You said you were nervous to apply. Is that something that you've kind of had to face? Is it, do you think it's, where's the fear? Is it um, imposter syndrome? You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what are your thoughts around that? And has that shown up, uh, you know, starting this business and, and how do you address it? That's a really great question. And, and so fear is the key word here that was the, word that I resonated with and learned from in that situation. I was scared to apply. I was a dual athlete in college. I went to college for soccer, ended up also playing basketball. I also happened to like to party. So, <laughs> so with that being said, you know, I didn't have straight A's in my biology courses. And 
one of my biology professors was being honest as he should have been with me and giving me advice and made his expression that he did not think my grades were good enough to get into vet school. And so I ended up getting some pretty significant fear to apply because I was scared of rejection. But what I've learned is veterinary school is way more than just about your grades in undergrad, you know, or your grades in general. It's about being a comprehensive person. And, you know, I went to veterinary school and I rocked it out because that was my only focus. What I learned from that experience of not applying to veterinary school because I was scared was how fear immobilizes you. It just makes you stay still. And from that moment, I made the conscious decision, especially since my interview was so successful and I did so well, that when I feel fear from here on out, that I'm just going to jump. That was my learning. So now if I ever feel fearful, I jump out there. You know, I'm either going to fly or I'm going to fall. And if I fall, that's still a lesson on its own, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then you jump again. And so that's how I've started living my life since then. Mm. Do you have any recommendations or pieces of advice for other people who might be, um, fearful right now, whether it's in their career or they're looking for where they can have impact. Any any words of wisdom there? I, I think my best words of wisdom is I do a lot of self-reflection, a lot of self-reflection. In order for you to create a plan of action, you have to figure out what the root cause of your inaction is, right? Whether it's is fear or whatever, whatever the, you know, whatever your root cause of whatever emotional distress you're feeling at that moment. Once you determine what the root cause of that is, it allows you insight to then create a plan and move forward, you know, and it's one step at a time. It's literally one step at a time. And oftentimes we get so bogged down looking too far in the future. I say to people, and my best suggestion is just take just take the first step in whatever it may be, whether that's calling a school, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, just getting on Google and finding a professional in in this space or, you know, or getting on LinkedIn and say, hey, I, I see you're, you know, you're in this area. I just wanted to, you know, network and establish contact. That's how it starts. One step at a time. And then the next thing you know, you're all the way up the ladder, you know, but it's it's just that one little forward step. And don't look too far in the future. Just look to that immediate step. Yes, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take a step. I think that was. You also said something about exposed to a lot of different schools across the, the country was your parents' belief of exposing you to different experiences. And 
you know, that, that honestly, that that's one reason for this podcast is I want to show people all the different things that people do in veterinary medicine. But I, I do see that that is a, a challenge for for children and, and for um, especially, I believe, underrepresented mm-hmm. individuals in, in our profession. So do you have any additional thoughts around how we can better share opportunities and experiences or any thoughts around that? Yeah. So um, that that's a big thing. When you, when you look at just the veterinary profession as a whole, since I was in veterinary school, it has been a big push to diversify our field, right? Mm-hmm. You know, since I was in vet school, and that was over 15 years ago. And since then, they there have been a lot of organizations that have started for for that, right? Um, and although I don't have all the answers, one of the things that I think is really important is, in my opinion, oftentimes these pure souls, when they are in elementary school, when they're at their purest, most often they have some type of insight of what they're interested in or what their talents are at a very, very early age. And so I think that as professionals, that we need to start connecting, volunteering, opening up our practices for tours or events or whatever to these kids when they're at the elementary level, whether it's brownies, Boy Scouts, 4-H club, whether it's career day, Oh, yes. You know, where it's career day and you allow these kids to have exposure to you and to ask questions for the lower income communities is even more important for us to participate in those types of uh, events or uh, volunteering our time, volunteering books so they mm-hmm. can have access through reading on uh, other things that they can be and options and, and just getting that exposure. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I will make sure to put all the links to your consulting group in the description so people can reach out when they have, when, when, not if, when they have a client who wants a, <laughs> a support animal, because we know that's really common. And then I just have a, a final four question for you to wrap it up. First question is, what is something people get wrong about you? You know what? Most people, when they first, what I'm told, when they first meet me, they are really intimidated by me. They think that I'm mean. Yeah. And, and I've, I've heard this from so many texts, you know, um, I've heard this from a couple of doctors and uh, <laughs> then they get to know me and I'm a complete goofball. And they're like, <laughs> you know, we had it so wrong. So, you know, that that is what people get wrong. Their initial first impression, they think that, I don't know, it can be a, a little, maybe I have a, a RBF. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you carry confidence. That's uh, That can be a very good thing too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely carry confidence. So yeah. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> 
Uh, question number two is what is a hidden skill or interest that you have? Hidden skill or interest. So I recently last year moved um, to Phoenix with my fiance and he's an outdoorsman. And so I recently got into paddle boarding and, oh, wow. <laughs> and he may be peaking my interest in camp camping, but right now I'm going to stick with paddle boarding before I go with camping. And so, yeah, I um, now have this strong interest in paddle boarding. Very cool. Yes. Paddle boarding is different than sleeping on the ground. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really interesting. I've heard it's challenging. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just do the knee paddleboard. I can't stand up yet. Um, eventually, hopefully I'll get to where I can stand up on it. Very cool. All right. And what is something on your bucket list? Bucket list. You know what? I have always had a, an internal interest in Japanese culture. Mm. And so on my bucket list is to have an extended trip to Japan, um, mm. more of a cultural trip, um, just to uh, explore their country and their culture and, you know, just to get my feel of um of their history and their culture. Like it's a really uh, deeply respectful culture. They really idolize their elder. And I really would like to see that in, in real time. Oh, wow. I like that a lot. And finally, what is something you are most grateful for? You know what? Now that I've gotten older and I have talked to friends and had my life experiences, I am very thankful for my parents and mm -hmm. their insights because I think that they put me on an absolutely uh, fantastic track. Although I'm not a parent yet, I'm a pet parent. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I hear so many stories of parents saying, you know, they're just figuring it out as they go. And, you know, they question you know, their every decision. And um, I think Cecil and Loretta Houston did a phenomenal job. Uh, I'm the youngest of four. Pretty much all four of us stayed on the straight and narrow and uh, have done uh, or did very well for ourselves. And um, I, I truly, truly have um, to be thankful for my parents' guidance and insights um, for that. This was an awesome conversation with Dr. Risa Houston. Please check out assistanceanimalconsulting.com, the first of its kind virtual consulting firm of licensed veterinarians who are also human animal bond certified. And I can't wait to have you again on another episode of the Vet Life Reimagined. Please follow, subscribe, and share. Until next time.